Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're going on to a new reading, just to kind of put a capper on our reading of Lenin's imperialism. We're going to read a book called Lenin's Imperialism in the 21st Century. We're not reading the whole book, uh, it's basically a series of discrete essays, and I've just picked a couple for us to go over that sort of just carry the thread onwards. As with previous episodes, check the show notes if you want to see footnotes, as well as figures, and in this case there's also tables, which is very exciting. But in addition to that, there's a lot of acronyms that get used, a lot of things get referred to by letters. There are far too many to keep track of, so I'm going to put a list of them in the show notes in case you ever need to check them. Most of them get mentioned pretty much just once and then ignored for the rest of it, but just in case, I've put the full list in there. This week we'll be reading the first chapter. We'll be reading the entire thing, so this whole episode's a little bit long. So, let's get started. Lenin's Imperialism in the 21st Century Chapter 1. The Second Century of Imperialism Neoliberal Globalization and Permanent War Project of Monopoly Capital by Antonio Tuyan Jr. If the first century of imperialism started in the mid-19th century and saw the emergence of international cartels carving spheres of influence, wars of aggression, and colonialism, as described by Lenin, the second century of imperialism was ushered by the Second World War and the post-war economic boom, where US imperialism emerged ultimate victor in military and economic terms. It not only reaped the profits in wartime production and military hegemony, but it also constructed the political, economic, military, American century. Economic boom of the 1950s and 1960s was not only the result of reconstruction and economic recovery from the destruction of the Second World War, it also coincided with, and was the product of, US imperialist economic hegemony which prevailed over different spheres of influence of its co-imperialist allies. It strengthened neo-colonialism from the newly independent colonies, it consolidated international policies and institutions under its control, such as the monetary system, e.g. via the dollar peg, and the International Monetary Fund, IMF, financial institutions, banks and investment, and economic development institutions, OECD, World Bank. It was not without the contention of the socialist bloc under the leadership of the Soviet Union that countered US imperialism and the continuing policy of wars of aggression. The USSR eventually became a social imperialist power and engaged with a hegemonic competition with US imperialism that became known as the Cold War. But with the ultimate decline of monopoly capital, Imperialism constructed neoliberalism as its savior in the 1970s to 1980s. Neoliberalism was meant not only to try to arrest the economic decline in the imperialist heartland, but also increase super profits from the neo-colonies and other capitalist countries. At the time, the US military-industrial complex spawned its own reason of being as a major source of super profits through a permanent war policy after World War II combining the Cold War and continuous wars of aggression, from Korea to Syria, all around the world. The imperialist neoliberal project and permanent war policy did not stave off this decline, resulting instead in unprecedented economic, social, political, and environmental crisis that could bring humanity and the Earth to ruin. 
establishment of US economic hegemony after World War II until the 1970s. Footnote 1. As the victor of the Second World War, the US became the organizer and leader of the world imperialist system. This role and task was necessary not only to rebuild countries ravaged by the war, but also in competition against the emerging socialist bloc countries. Besides competing with the socialist bloc, the US sought to expand capitalism and diminish the non-capitalist world by means of international agencies established towards end of war, the United Nations, World Bank, and IMF, and activities of the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, UNRRA, Marshall Plan, and several economic and military aid programs financed and controlled from Washington consolidated the envisioned international system. The US built up itself as the center of global financial network. It expanded bank branches from 16 countries in 1918 to 55 countries in 1967. This was assisted, among other things, by a. Continued extension of US foreign oil, mining, and manufacturing interests, b. Spread of military bases, and c. Penetration of areas by government military and economic aid, including entrance into former colonies, once exclusive preserve of other imperialist countries. This network of bank branches and subsidiaries means the transfer of funds required for military-related purposes became a source of profit for U.S. financial sector. A critical factor for U.S. financial hegemony was the peg or equation of dollar with gold, which was stipulated in Article 4 of the treaty establishing the IMF. Quote, The power value of the currency of each member shall be expressed in terms of gold as a common denominator or in terms of the United States dollar of the weight and finances in effect on July 1st, 1944. End quote. Equating the dollar with gold set up a relationship of dependency of all capitalist nations on U.S. monetary and financial system. As Magdoff explains, quote, The reliance on the United States dollar means that in the final analysis, and this becomes painfully apparent on the brink of crisis, the holders of the United States IOUs can use them only to purchase United States goods at United States prices. Assuming, of course, that the United States keeps its faith when it itself is faced with special difficulties. Footnote 2. End quote. Besides pegging gold to the dollar, the US also ensures control over financial and monetary systems of other countries through the IMF. A country that applies for a loan to the IMF a short-term loan to stabilize currency, in most cases does so in situation of desperation. IMF lending and US aid complement each other. As a former aid official reported, quote, The Greek stabilization program in the mid-1950s and agreements with Brazil, Colombia, and Chile have all been supported by US aid, linked to observance of IMF recommendations. In Chile, for example, Program loans in 1963 and 1964 were largely conditioned on Chilean compliance with fiscal, monetary, and foreign exchange rate policies defined in standby agreements with the IMF. More recently, in 1966 to 1967, aid assistance to Ceylon and Ghana was tied to stabilization measures recommended by the fund. Footnote 3. End quote. In 1971, Nixon removed the dollar from the gold peg, preventing claims against the dollar from depleting the US gold reserves. 
the US economic hegemony assured the relative strength of the dollar, and in turn, further ensured the independent role of the dollar as worldwide currency and store of value, despite the US policy continually printing dollars to buoy financial resources. Footnote 4. The financial and monetary system built up and controlled by US imperialism has become one of the key drivers of imperialist economic control and exploitation of poor countries seeking to emerge from the ruins of war. Trade and investment control, sooner than later, leaves a country in a balance of payment deficit that eats up reserves of state treasury or central bank. As the deficit persists, collection notices from foreign sellers cannot be complied with, and payments of interest and amortization on past loans from foreign bankers and governments cannot be made. Dividends on foreign investments cannot be remitted, and the country faces bankruptcy. Post-war reconstruction and development were critical needs of countries coming out of the war. Newly independent from colonialism and facing severe poverty, and the US used its control of war industry to control international development through the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, IBRD, which later became the World Bank and remains an important source for long-term funds, and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, which grew out of the Marshall Plan. Among other things, the latter established working groups attending to particular assistance problems, e.g. how to assess developing country performance problems and aid requirements, or how to encourage greater private investment in developing countries. Through these institutions, imperialists amass superprofits via loans and via the IMF-facilitated lending by the Paris Club of Imperialist Banks to extract further financial superprofits. Development finance became and remains a lucrative source of superprofits from loans from public development aid and from public debt from multinational banks facilitated by Official Development Assistance ODA. Such foreign assistance contributes to the maintenance of freedom of access to raw materials, trade, and investment opportunities for US business. It is also historically linked to the implementation of military and political policies of the US and keeping aid recipients dependent on US and other capital markets. It is a clear intention that any development that manages to take place in the global south be firmly rooted in capitalist practices. Neo-colonial trade and investment structures are another key feature of the global imperialist system that the US ensured through development programs managed by the World Bank and under UNCTID. The debt crisis facing poor countries results in the breakdown of foreign trade and inability to import foreign goods necessary for economic life of a country. This crisis in the 1960s before neoliberal restructuring is well illustrated in Table 1 and Table 2, presenting data on the interconnection of debt and export-oriented trade. Table 1. Proportion of export absorbed by debt service and profits on foreign investment in 1966. Table 2. Patterns of export growth. Developed versus underdeveloped countries. The proportion of exports absorbed by debt service and profits of foreign investment, i.e. exports necessary to obtain dollars with which to service debt. To escape the trade-slash-investment trap and the resulting payments deficits, developing countries started developing from the Import Substitution Industrialization ISI, strategy to promotion of new strategies for export development best illustrated by this case of the Philippines. 
UNDP organized an interagency mission report on the Philippines, sharing and development, a program of employment, equity, and growth in the Philippines, which was unofficially called the Ranis Mission Report. Around the same time that President Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law, he instituted what was called the Labor Intensive Export Oriented LIEO, Industrial Strategy, now more commonly referred to as Export Oriented Industrialization. EOI. One of the justifications provided for the shift was the inability of the previous ISI regime to respond to recurring balance of payments problems aggravated by the Philippines' import dependency, e.g. oil, machinery, industrial raw materials, and over-concentration of its export crops, limited to goods like sugar, coconut, and minerals, primarily gold and copper. Footnote 5. EOI, however, had only proven itself unable to resolve these obstacles to development. Crisis of monopoly capital and the rise of neoliberalism. The worldwide economic boom started to wane in the 1970s. Rising unemployment and inflation ensured that the crisis was widely felt. Aside from unemployment, the new era was marked by slowed growth and technical progress, overheating, runaway inflation, and monetary and financial crisis. International capital flows, meanwhile, put stress on the fixed exchange rate system, leading to its abandonment in 1971 and the adoption of floating rates. A major determinant of the crisis, and factor in the regressive shift in policymaking that followed, was the well-documented decline in the rate of profit captured by capitalist firms since the 1960s, which prompted the rise of neoliberalism in response. Footnote 6 it was the Mont Pelerin Society, founded by Friedrich August von Hayek, that presented the systemic formulation of the economic principles of neoliberalism, which intended to challenge Marxism and other forms of state-centered planning more generally. Milton Friedman, of the Chicago School, held that only a self-regulating free market yielded the correct number of goods at correct prices produced by workers at wage levels determined by the market. This implied that monetary policies should take precedence over fiscal policy. In short, neoliberalism is a set of ideas or doctrine or doctrine that holds free market capitalism as the best way of ensuring prosperity and freedom for all. Free market propaganda even includes free consumer choices to confuse people. But this definition is illusory or contradictory or caveats in the sense that there is no such phenomenon as a free market in economies rife with monopolies of all forms and especially in a situation dominated by monopoly capitalism. The reality is that monopoly corporations and multinationals practice all forms of monopoly in violation of free market rules and regulations. The neoliberal response to the crisis of the 1970s took a variety of forms. In the United Kingdom, it manifested through the monetary policy orientation of the Thatcher administration, which held the growth of the money supply as the chief culprit for bad economic performance. In the United States, it came in the guise of the supply-side prescriptions of the Reagan administration, which held taxes as the primary cause of poor economic performance. The policies came together with a propaganda campaign, serving to create the impression of inevitability and permanence, captured most succinctly in Thatcher's frequent proclamation that there is no alternative. Concerning international trade and investment, 
Reagan's advancement of the neoliberal agenda was somewhat modest in comparison to others. While the US administration was strongly involved in the 1982 GATT negotiations on liberalizing trade, the 1982 recession led to Reagan giving in to domestic producer demands for the US to opt out of discussions. Still, the administration participated in the Uruguay Round of 1986 to 1994, which covered areas ranging from agriculture and services to intellectual property rights. The Reagan government's biggest success in advancing the neoliberal trade regime was the negotiation of a free trade agreement, FTA, with Canada, though it would require President Bill Clinton to complete the process in 1993 by signing NAFTA. Footnote 7. In the international scene of the 1970s, one of the most widely felt forms of neoliberalism was the increase in structural adjustment programs, SAPs, of the IMF and World Bank. While SAPs stem from conditionalities on loans by these institutions since the 1950s, it was during the 1980s that the IMF and the World Bank established themselves as creditors for the majority of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Footnote 8. These programs placed African and other countries of the Global South on a regime of liberalization, deregulation, and privatization to shift the burden of development financing to one private sector. Assumed was the implementation of an export-led, foreign-funded development strategy exemplified by the so-called newly industrializing economies, NIEs. Such restructuring conveniently attuned economies of poorer countries to foreign trade and investments, and to neoliberal globalization. This first-wave neoliberalism of the 1980s was bound to a geopolitical mission, halting the growing influence of communism in what was then called the Third World. In contrast to his unexceptional commitment to trade and investment, Reagan indulged his neoconservative impulses towards the intervention into regional conflicts, in both an open and covert manner, to support guerrilla movements in overthrowing Soviet-sponsored regimes. The Reagan administration also engineered the 1983 invasion of the Caribbean island of Grenada, seeking to topple the socialist Sandinista government in Nicaragua, not to mention providing a steady stream of arms to Islamist freedom fighters, i.e. the Mujahideen, which would later become the Taliban. Thatcher shared such neoconservative impulses, e.g. the Falklands War, and both the US and UK administrations were bent on proving the superiority of free market capitalism to the world, even if neoconservatism itself stood in some tension with neoliberal principles. In the 1990s, the process of laying the foundation of the general and comprehensive implementation of neoliberalism in trade and investment was completed. This was accomplished by the Uruguay Round, 1986-1994, of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT. It was this round that established the WTO, which was formally opened on January 1st, 1995. Now, apart from the indebted countries already under the sway of SAPs of the IMF World Bank, more and more countries, currently including 164 member states, were covered under the WTO agreements. Through the combination of the SAPs and the WTO, developing countries were further imprisoned in perpetual underdevelopment through free trade and investment, 
consigning them to the fate of providers of cheap labor, cheap raw materials, consumers of first world exports, and profitable havens for monopoly capital. The regional trading blocs that came in the wake of GATT served to consolidate the Uruguay Accord and facilitate the work of the WTO by hastening the implementation of its policy prescriptions and then some. Trade liberalization has led to massive dumping of surplus agricultural and industrial commodities, resulting in the bankruptcy of both peasant farms and traditional commercial farms, and both weak national industries and small and medium enterprises. Such destruction of production forces in developing countries has tremendous consequences in terms of massive unemployment and poverty, hitting the core sectors of agriculture and manufacturing in developing countries. It is important to note that the agricultural sector is the foundation of many economies in the global south, government policies attuned to the SAPs, TNC control of agricultural technology and the effective liberalization of agricultural imports result in various levels of restructuring of agricultural position, of agricultural production, which displaces farmers economically, and even physically, by the thousands. Most hard hit are subsistence peasants as globalization brings in new production technology requiring crop conversion and an adjustment in production relations in the form of contract growing. Hence, although coined in the 1980s by free market economist John Williamson, it was not until the 1990s that the Washington Consensus became the global framework for proper economic development. The phrase became a catch-all term for the standard set of policies described by the IMF, World Bank, and other Washington-based institutions for countries in the Global South, particularly in Latin America. The consensus's original ten defining policy descriptions, as outlined by Williamson, were as follows. Footnote 9. Number 1. Fiscal policy discipline, with avoidance of large fiscal deficits relative to GDP. 2. Redirection of public spending from subsidies, especially indiscriminate subsidies, toward broad-based provision of key pro-growth, pro-poor services like primary education, primary health care, and infrastructure investment. 3. Tax reform, broadening the tax base, and adopting moderate marginal tax rates. 4. Interest rates that are market-determined and positive, but moderate, in real terms. 5. Competitive exchange rates. 6. Trade liberalization. Liberalization of imports, with particular emphasis on elimination of quantitative restrictions, licensing, etc. Any trade protection to be provided by low and relatively uniform tariffs. 7. Liberalization of inward foreign direct investments. 8. Privatization of state enterprises. 9. Deregulation. Abolition of regulations that impede market entry or restrict competition, except for those justified on safety, environmental and consumer protection grounds, and prudential oversight of financial institutions. And 10. Legal security for property rights. In a nutshell, the Washington Consensus prescribed trade and financial liberalization, deregulation, privatization, and fiscal belt tightening. SAPs continued to play a strong role, and increasing numbers of debt-ridden developing countries were forced to implement neoliberal policies. The global monopoly capitalist collusion, pushing the neoliberal agenda, strongly shaped the drafting of agreements. Quote, During the GATT Uruguay round, 
Unilever, Hoxt, and Sibagegi targeted the European Union, while the United States delegation was influenced by the Intellectual Property Coalition, including Pfizer, Monsanto, and DuPont. Their efforts were noticeable in the drafting of the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, TRIPS, which extended the GATT mandate from purely trade issues to intellectual property rights, including patents for life forms developed by biotechnology. Footnote 10. End quote. The design for liberalization covered not just trade, but included financial and investment liberalization. Thus, the ink was barely dry on the Uruguay-Rand Agreement in Marrakesh in 1994 when preparations were underway for a proposed Multilateral Investment Agreement, MIA, planned to be rolled out at the first WTO ministerial in 1996 in Singapore. Were it not for the objection of the South African Development Community, SADC, countries besides Egypt, Uganda, Tanzania, and Ghana that broke the consensus, the MIA would have sealed an expansion of the WTO and neoliberal globalization more broadly. Footnote 11. Undaunted by this turn of events, the US-led monopoly capitalist collusion further pushed the MIA, renaming it Multilateral Agreement on Investment, MAI, and presenting it as a plurilateral agreement under sponsorship of the OECD, where it was negotiated first among its industrialized country members. Yet again, the proposed agreement fell through when, after months of global campaigning, France objected, citing liberalization of investment in arts and culture as problematic. The unrelenting imperialist push for expansion of neoliberalism meant the return of initiatives to expand the WTO through the Doha Round, starting in 2001. The Non-Agricultural Market Access NAMA, negotiations and the expanded General Agreement on Trade in Services GATS, these initiatives remain failures and unconcluded, giving way to the creation of bilateral, regional, and plurilateral free trade and investment agreements of all kinds. Some were sponsored by US imperialism, like Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, TPPA, or the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP. Others were supported by European imperialist powers under the European Union, EU, such as the Expanded Economic Partnership Agreements, EPAs, or the bilateral agreements between the EU and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. Still others were supported by the emerging imperialist power, China, with the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, being the most notable here. Production Globalization the economic term and concept of globalization was coined by economists to mean economic integration, mainly through international trade and investment. Footnote 12. The concept fit perfectly with the monopoly capitalist agenda of neoliberalism in policy and practice of international economic integration. But the material base in production for globalization was the rapid advance of technology brought out by digitization over practically all arenas of production of capital goods and downstream industrial applications. It can be said that globalization was born out of technological revolution. The crisis of overproduction in the 1970s and 1980s provided the impetus for better production and the improvement of production processes and machinery to expand investment in constant capital. Further among its different impacts, 
technological revolution resulted in the dramatic reduction in the costs of trade, in communications and transportation, that made globalization possible. Innovations in palletization of shipping, aviation, and digitization of communication are a few dramatic examples. This facilitated the expansion not simply of trade, but in the export of capital, as the revolution in communications allowed the easier and cheaper operations of international financial institutions, allowing more speculative portfolio investments. Footnote 13. Labor relations were dramatically changed, such that the social contract between labor and capital, flawed as it already was, was abolished, and various forms of flexible short-term contracts were instituted to the benefit of capital, according to the immediate requirement and production schedule. Besides the advances in technology and production of capital goods, another key development in globalization is subcontracting or production globalization. Production outsourcing started in the 1950s, but became marked in the 1970s with the creation of industrial estates, which allowed duty-free access of inputs and finished goods under outsourcing. Such special export zones, SEZs, eventually morphed into various zones, or even office buildings where multinationals operate their business outsourcing and call services, that were accorded various perks and benefits besides tax privileges. Outsourcing expanded into agriculture, such as contract farming for high-value crops, and into service sectors, such as call centers and many other web-enabled businesses. As global monopoly capital exports excess capital and goods in order to pass the burden of the crisis of overproduction to the colonies and neo-colonies of the imperialist powers, monopoly capital does not create jobs in the global south, but achieves the reverse in destroying jobs in domestic industries and subsistence agriculture. The vast reserve army of unemployed proletarians and semi-proletarians in the global south is a surplus labor force not created by capitalist accumulation, but by the imperialist policy of neocolonialism and maldevelopment. This constitutes an international reserve, an international surplus labor population, that monopoly capital extracts super profits from, through wages that are systematically depressed, far below already cheap standards and costs of living of developing countries. It is in this context that production subcontracting has evolved as another form of extracting super-profits under globalization, taking advantage of differentials in production costs and market prices in importing industrialized countries and exporting developing countries, the multinational corporations rake in super-profits that are often over 100 times the average profit margins. It is also in this context that temporary migrant labor is the most obscene example of squeezing labor surplus from the vast reserve of the impoverished toiling masses in the semi-colonies to work and eke out a living as an underclass of undocumented foreign workers in the imperialist heartland. Footnote 14. Financial liberalization and financialization of economies. What the world has been undergoing in the past five years is a protracted depression in the context of neoliberal globalization, in which a. recession and weak growth follow each other in the real economy in capitalism's historically proven periodic boom and bust cycles, but in the context of overall decline or depression, and at the same time, 
B. The ever-expanding financial or casino economy generates its own fluctuations, which are more chaotic and less predictable, exacerbate recession, and contribute to the overall economic decline. This is evident in the US data on real GDP growth rates across 50 years. Figure 1. US real gross domestic product, recession's linear regression, and the 10-year MA. Footnote 15. The combination of boom and bust cycle with financial crashes is not new, since stock markets and other forms of financial speculation have already been standard features of advanced industrial economies since the late 19th century, and have accompanied boom and bust cycles since then. But things have changed with the implementation of debt as a policy of growth in the 1980s and the rise to dominance of financialization. The expansion of speculative financial investment instruments, ushered by financial liberalization, and the emergence of the fictitious economy. Footnote 16. Comparing the impact of financial derivatives to the total world economic output, many economists now acknowledge that the level of financial derivatives has skyrocketed since the 1980s, and the unwinding, if not sudden bursting, of these derivatives present risks to the overall economy that are much greater and more unpredictable than what occurred during the Great Depression in the 1930s. Neoliberalism's financial liberalization and increases in investments to the neo-colonies and former colonies have promoted greater unemployment as a result of productive speculative investment, financial destabilization due to finance speculation, and economic instability under an environment of investment deregulation. Condition of permanent crisis in the neo-colonies has also been intensifying under globalization, as monopoly capital seeks more and more ways to pass on the effects of a worsening crisis of imperialism. The conditions of economic depression in the colonies and neo-colonies are further intensified by the debt crises facing most of them, as their payments on public and private debt become one of the most profitable sources of income from the export of capital. As Washington consensus conditionalities further weaken these countries and leave them to the mercy of global markets, the only recourse of relief is more borrowing that only worsens indebtedness, leading to economic ruin. In recent years, high food prices have become the new normal. Despite lower demand and a slight decline in cereal prices due to stagnant economies, food prices remained high or volatile. This is mostly the result of financial speculation in agricultural commodities, which has become an increasing arena of neoliberal globalization. By many accounts, the current food outlook appears more positive in terms of increased production, declining imports, and slight drops in high prices. But the basic underlying drivers that triggered the crisis, such as financial speculation and environmental pressures, continue unabated. Crisis of Neoliberalization and the Downward Spiral of Depression and War The 2008 financial meltdown was a series of financial bubbles, the subprime debacle leading to bigger collapses in real estate, credit swaps, and other speculative financial instruments, bursting in chain reaction, and resulting in the closure of several giant financial houses. While the bailouts may have gained some breathing space for selected businesses and banks that are deemed too big to fail, the economies reel from one bailout crisis to the next as they fail to generate enough jobs and consumer demand. 
with the financial meltdown pulling down the rest of the world economy, the first response of most developed countries was to bail out the biggest banks and firms that were too big to fail. This required massive public expenditures that soon led to equally massive public deficits and public debt. Yet these were done enough to reverse the trends of slowdown. Recession and anemic growth continued in the real economy in the succeeding years. As suggested from figure 2, world GDP growth, annual percentage, the stimulus efforts have not resulted to restoring growth to pre-crisis levels. The rates of world nominal GDP growth seem to point in the same direction, with a severe drop in growth in 2010, marking, among other things, the onset of a period of global public expenditure contraction. Crisis response measures are at an end, and the next phase of the crisis has arrived. Andrew Haldane, a chief economist at the Bank of England, described the economic situation in a 2015 speech. Quote, Recent events from the last leg of what might be called the three-part crisis trilogy. Part one of that trilogy was the Anglo-Saxon crisis of 2008-2009. Part two was the Euro-area crisis of 2011-2012. And we may now be entering the early stages of part three of the trilogy, the Emerging Market crisis of 2015 onwards. Footnote 17. End quote. The crisis in the Global South is, in part, one of massive and increasing debt. The IMF in 2016 asserted, quote, Low-income countries are increasingly exposed to a wider set of vulnerabilities, including from market volatility and costlier debt, an environment many may not be familiar with. The challenging global environments suggest that debt vulnerabilities are likely to increase for many of these countries. End quote. In fact, the developing country debt payments increased by 45% between 2014 and 2016, pushing them to their highest level since 2007. Footnote 18. Low and lower middle income sovereign debt has risen from 56 billion US dollars in 2008 to 262 billion US dollars in 2016. My note, that's more than four times as much. This volatile situation has in fact resulted from the northern responses to the crisis. Furthermore, the increase in emerging market corporate debt coincides with decreasing Asian commodity prices since 2014, which means the debt payment will become more difficult for firms in the south. The boom in lending to southern countries has resulted from the northern policy response to the crisis. The quantitative easing, QE, and low interest rates in the north has pushed profit-hungry lenders towards the global south, where it is possible to charge higher rates of interest. Yet, now that the ultra-low interest rates maintained by the US Federal Reserves to stimulate the economy are being reversed, the ensuing increase in the face of US dollars vis-a-vis southern currencies has created the conditions for currency mismatches. Combined with the aforementioned falling prices of export commodities, the challenge of debt repayment approaches impossibility. While the financial markets are heating up anew and creating conditions for a new crash, the difference from 2008 is that the stakes are higher this time. This is because the central banks, having bought up enormous amounts of public and private financial assets through QE, have become key financial market players themselves. They are at risk of collapse should a new financial shock explode in their faces. Back in mid-May 2013, IMF economists 
warned of the interest rate spikes and crash in bond prices that could result from ending QE. In this context of escalating crisis, the US seeks to maintain its hegemonic position, generally with the support of the EU and Japan, through international trade agreements, overseeing governance of international debt and finance relations, and seeking out and monopolizing property through privatization, among other endeavors. Yet from a post-Cold War US-dominated unipolar world for two decades, global politics has gone through significant realignments at the start of the new millennium. This can be characterized as a multipolar transition, in which position and actions of other big powers did not often coincide with the US position. This situation contains factors that may eventually trigger more realignments and even polarization of hegemonic spheres. The bizarre outcome of the supposed post-Cold War era is that the strategic arms race is continuing. The US maintains its nuclear missile defense structure in Europe, while the US claims that its missile systems are a shield against possible nuclear attack by Iran, Russia appears to be the real target. Russia accuses the US NATO program of planning to crawl right up its western and southern borders, while China balances its options and various considerations in upholding its national and global interests as an emerging imperialist power. It looms as the more strategic challenger in terms of its economic and rapidly building up military capacity. In the struggle for imperialist dominance, Cold War-like posturing between US and Russia is most alarming in the form of saber-rattling, whether thinly veiled as a series of large-scale military exercises or official threats of military intervention in areas that are already flashpoints of armed conflict. In particular, the US-led plans to trample on Syria and Iran are gaining momentum. A large part of the rationale behind the US's so-called rebalancing towards Asia is containment of Chinese influence. Some aspects of this started during the Bush administration, and then during Obama's first term, such as closer ties with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, and the launching of the now-abandoned Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, TPPA. But the most dramatic, and the aspect towards which President Trump is most clearly committed, is the military pivot to East Asia and Southwest Pacific regions. The concrete objectives are to protect current US dominance over the shipping lanes from the Indian Ocean to the South China Sea, to defend the choke points in case they are closed by hostile states, e.g. Iran for the Strait of Hormuz, and to prevent other potential threats from rival powers and hostile states from undermining US economic, political, and military interests in the region. Despite the Trump administration's role in the demise of the TPPA, these objectives remain high priority for the US. The arms trade is further indication of the ties between heightened militarism and the capitalist prioritization of profit. The US and other developed countries, which are mostly the biggest military spenders, are also the biggest arms traders, suppliers, and military aid givers to armies worldwide. The US, Russia, France, UK, and China, who are also the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, together with Germany and Italy, accounted for around 85% of the arms sold between 2004 and 2011. Worldwide, some 45 to 60 billion US dollars worth of arms deals are closed yearly, with three-fourths sold to developing countries. Leading arms industries justify this by saying that arms production creates jobs, and that if they did not see to undemocratic regimes, someone else would. The imperialist neoliberal globalization project 
has been accompanied with permanent wars of aggression, starting with the Korea and Vietnam Wars, the occupation of Palestine, the military incursions in Haiti, Lebanon, and so on, the invasion of Iraq and Libya, and now Syria and Yemen. Indeed, there is no peace dividend from the end of the Cold War, as imperialist lapdogs and triumphalists claim, because the end of the Cold War was but the beginning of a policy of conquest and permanent war of aggression of countries and peoples across the world. The military-industrial complex is crucial as a vehicle to sop up excess capital and thus has to be fed constantly with wars, and the terminal economic, political and climate crisis leave imperialists no recourse but war and fascism. Yet the crisis has also motivated resistance to the heavily militarized maintenance of US hegemony over the system of plunder and exploitation of the global south. Popular wars of national liberation are intensifying and expanding. These include the long-running mass-based armed struggles or popular insurgencies, such as those in the Philippines, Colombia, Kurdistan, India, and other South Asian countries. Those where recently the US and NATO have carried out or threatened to launch blatant wars of aggression, as in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in other territories held by a foreign military occupying power, such as in Israel-occupied Palestine. The only solution to the suffering of the workers and the peoples of the world is to end the scourge that is imperialism through a people's revolutionary war and build socialism. And that concludes our reading from Lenin's Imperialism in the 21st Century. As I said at the top, this is just the first chapter from a couple that I'm picking out of this book. I do recommend reading the others, they kind of go into some more detail. There's a little bit of repetition of re-summarizing Lenin's work and then covering the same material about the past hundred years of American imperialism. But with that out of the way, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go there to find lots of podcasts about books, video games, anime. The music for this show is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.